back i would like to take the time to quote from los alamos from below um let me excerpt what, the two of the moments i really enjoyed from that essay uh, which come out of surely you're joking mr Feynman. i would like to do my best to share with you uh Feynman was working in los alamos where they were designing the bomb he was sent out to tennessee to oak ridge where they were trying to separate the uranium to better coordinate things this came about because uh according to Feynman. Quote, the people in Oak Ridge didn't know anything about what it was to be used for. They just knew what they were trying to do. I mean, the higher people knew they were separating uranium, but they didn't know how powerful the bomb was or exactly how it worked or anything. The people underneath didn't know at all what they were doing. He got a report back that when Professor Segray went out to look at what was going on, he saw them wheeling a tank of, uh, of water that was uranium nitrate solution, and he <laughs> said to the Army, are you going to handle it like that when it's purified too? Is that what you're going to do? They said, sure, why not? <laughs> Won't it explode, he said. And the Army said, now you see, we shouldn't have let them have any information at all. Now they're all upset. <laughs> so they come to the realization that you can't let uranium accumulate. It reaches what you may or may not know is critical mass, at which point it gets really hot and can explode. So uh, they take great precautions to redesign the refining process so that there's always a backup system. If something plugs up in an area, it will then have a backup way to be shunted off. Stuff will not accumulate, and therefore they'll be safe. So they go to great pains to redesign this. Enter young Dick Feynman. He goes out to Oak Ridge and notes that Lieutenant Zumwalt, who had been always coming around with me because I had to have an escort, takes me into this room where there are two engineers and a long table covered with a stack of blueprints representing the various floors of this proposed plant. Now, I took mechanical drawing when I was in school, but I'm not good at reading blueprints. Now, one of the things they had to avoid in the plant was accumulation. So they explained to me that this plant is designed so that if any one valve gets stuck, nothing will happen. It needs at least two valves everywhere. Then they explain how it works. The carbon tetrachloride comes in here, the uranium nitrate comes in here, goes up here, goes over there, goes down, goes to the floor, comes to the pipes, coming up to the second floor, goes to stack of blueprints, up, down, talking very fast, ex explaining the very, very complicated chemical plant. I'm completely dazed. Worse, I don't know what the symbols in the blueprint mean. There's some kind of thing that at first looks like a window. It's a square with a cross in the middle all over the damn place. I think it's a window, but no, it can't be a window because it isn't always at the edge. I want to ask them what it is. You must have been in a situation like this when you didn't ask them right away. Right away, it would have been okay, but now they've been talking a little bit too long. You hesitated too long. What am I going to do? I get an idea. I take my finger and I put it down on one of the mysterious little crosses in the middle of one of the blueprints on page three and I say, what happens if this valve gets stuck? Figuring they're going to say, that's not a valve, sir, that's a window. So one looks at the other and says, well, if that valve gets stuck and he goes up and down the blueprint, up and down, the other guy goes up and down, back and forth, back and forth, and they both look at each other. 
they turn around to me and they open their mouth like astonished fish and say, you're absolutely right, sir. So they rolled up the blueprints and away they went and we walked out. And Mr. Zumwalt, who'd been following me all the way through, said, you're a genius. Well, as we talked about in the last segment, he made fun of himself, but he was a genius. I did save from some years back a uh, collection of, of, of uh, items about the Nobel Prize. I thought this might be a good time to talk about, uh, about some of those. This comes from the October 16th, 2000 issue of Time. Apparently, the, uh, the youngest Nobel laureate was native New Yorker Carl David Anderson, who won the prize in physics in 1936 for discovering antimatter. He was 31. The oldest laureate was Francis Peyton Rue, who in 1968, at age 87, finally won the prize in medicine no less than 56 years after discovering cancer-causing viruses in chickens. And also from the Better Late Than Never file came Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who fell prey to international ridicule and was dubbed a fool in the early 1930s for postulating the existence of black holes. By the way, it said that Robert Oppenheimer might well have shared a Nobel Prize for his work on, uh, on black holes back in the 1930s. Chan Drasikar finally got his Nobel Prize in physics in 1983, by which time they discovered that this mathematical invention of his actually existed in the real universe. The article mentions four people who should have won a Nobel Prize but were overlooked. These include Thomas Alva Edison, the all-round American genius whose body of work certainly uh, certainly benefited mankind. The thing is, it's perhaps true that none of his inventions were completely original, except possibly the phonograph. But you know what? I think you should have got one for the phonograph. Jocelyn Bell first spotted pulsars but didn't share the prize won by her professor. C.H. Best did the key work of insulating insulin. But again, as sometimes happened, the senior professors were the ones that won the award. They were so ashamed that they shared their loot with C.H. Best. And Nikola Tesla, who discovered the rotating magnetic field, never got a Nobel Prize. We might want to mention three people who did, but shouldn't have. Included among those, Johannes Fibiger, who won in medicine in 1926 for discovering a parasite that caused cancer, except that it turned out it didn't. Antonio Meniz won in 1947, also in medicine, for the invention of the prefrontal lobotomy. A bad call there. And Julius Wagner von Jarig made it his mission to cure mental disease by inducing fever. He also won in medicine in 1927 for his treatment of dementia, which consisted of infecting the patients with malaria. That one didn't pan out so well either. We should also mention that although Albert Einstein did win a Nobel Prize, he was honored in 1921 not for his theory of relativity, but for his work on the photoelectric effect. We are fascinated by this, uh, this news story that they've now discovered another, well, planet in quotation marks that apparently is one and a half times the size of Pluto. This, uh, this means that what's probably going to happen is they're probably going to demote Pluto, as we've talked about on this program before. Two other bodies, which were almost as large as Pluto, Quahuar and Sedna, 
had been uh, discovered in the past couple of years. And, and they were almost the size of Pluto. And people were saying, you know, it's only a matter of time, we think, before we find something that's Pluto-sized. That moment has now arrived, and people have to now redefine what a planet is because, believe it or not, we've been unable to come to an agreement that everyone can share as to that definition. Seeing that Michael E. Brown, professor of planetary astronomy at uh, Caltech, where, where Dr. Feynman worked, is a member of the team that made the discovery. Uh, he apparently previously was in the camp that thought Pluto should be demoted. It really isn't deserving of planetary status. But now that he's discovered what would be the 10th planet, he's apparently changed his mind. I've told this story many times on this show, but I should do it one more. At Planet Fest in 1989 down in Pasadena, I went down to, uh, to share in, in the festive uh, scientific moment of the Voyager 2 spacecraft's flyby of Neptune. And at that time, I saw a little old man checking in to the hotel with Bradford Smith. I recognized him from Science Magazines, a University of, of, of um, Arizona astronomer. And Smith said, uh, we have a room for Clyde Tombaugh. And I turned to the man and said, excuse me, sir, are you Clyde Tombaugh? And this little 91-year-old man said, yes, I am. And I said, well, sir, I'd like to shake your hand because one doesn't get a chance to meet someone who discovers a planet just every day. And, of course, he was beaming, and I, and I told the clerks, you know, that's the guy that discovered Pluto. And they sort of exchanged a glance and went, really? And I'm like, yeah. And all of a sudden, Clyde Tombaugh was a big shot. And I, I do take great pleasure in having, uh, having helped bring that about. But, uh, but now it appears, if he gets his way, you can still shake hands with someone who discovered a planet if you go down and shake hands with Professor Brown. I think we're going to try and have a talk with uh, Michael E. Brown and perhaps uh, uh, Brian Marsden, who has to sort all this out from, I think, his office in MIT or somewhere in Boston. He gets to make the official call. They have tentatively named this new planet Xena after the television series about a Greek warrior princess, which was popular when the astronomers began their systematic sweep of the sky in the year 2000. Both Mr. McMillan and I agree that this is an embarrassing label to be placed upon this putative 10th planet, and I really think they should be ashamed of themselves. But uh, actually, all kidding aside, uh, Dr. Michael Lee Brown and the team at Caltech and, and, and the people at JPL, Palomar Observatory down in Southern California, all do deserve a pat in the back for this discovery. It's, it's very, very exciting. This object is 9 billion miles away, or 97 times as far away as the Earth is, about three times Pluto's current distance. It's the furthest object we've ever found out in the edge of the solar system. We're going to review this in a future show. Actually, New Scientist magazine just prophetically was talking about planets being found way, way out on the edge of the solar system, and, and we're, going to, we're going to give that its due. We also are proud to announce at this moment that in the next two weeks, we'll be speaking with both Steve Squires, who is head of the Mars team that landed the uh, two rovers, which are still outlasting their warranty and driving about on the Martian surface, as well as William Hartman, who's been a longtime professor of, uh, of, uh, of planetary science. Dr. Hartman has authored a, a new book called The Grand Tour, which, which is basically a beautiful and fascinating atlas of our solar system, something that, of course, was quite impossible until we started sending planetary probes out to see what's there. 
It, uh, it now seems pretty clear that uh, as global warming is inching forward, cyclones, hurricanes are getting stronger. Uh, just more evidence for this. Uh, a Bush administration, take note. We had a funny talk with Tom Burka on last week's program about editing of scientific reports. An actual example was published in Harper's uh, uh, this week. Uh, by Philip A. Cooney, the chief of staff for the White House. Uh, as regards to government reports on global warming, <laughs> he wrote, the original report said, many scientific observations point to the conclusion, and he just lined it out and put, indicate, that the Earth is, he, like, he substitutes, maybe undergoing a period of relatively rapid change. Tom was only parroting what's already out there. All right, we're just about out of time. I want to say that we're temporarily at least throwing in the towel on our effort to talk about uh, the remarkable ventriloquist Paul Winchell. We just can't seem to find anyone to talk about uh, how his patents on an artificial heart um, had actually proved useful, and we haven't been able to find anyone to talk about uh, Mr. Winchell in his uh, show business career, but by God, we're going to come back to that one. I think we're going to get a little bit of help from our, our friend Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. Two other obituary notes. We, we note with, um, uh, with sadness the passing of Shelby Foote, the novelist who became a consummate Civil War historian. Anyone who saw uh, Ken Burns' excellent documentary on the Civil War saw Shelby Foote's uh, footprint, as it were, all over that documentary. His work on the Civil War, The Civil War, A Narrative, took him 20 years to complete. It is currently ranked 15th on the Modern Library's list of the 20th century's 100 best nonfiction books written in English. And writer-actor Pat McCormick passed away last week. Pat McCormick was a veteran comedian and comedy writer who made scores of appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and was a regular guest on The Gong Show. Pat McCormick actually went to Harvard and a year into studies at Harvard Law School, dropped out to work in an advertising agency and uh, began make, started making money writing comedy material for television and nightclub performers, including Jonathan Winters, Henny Youngman, and Phyllis Diller, and eventually became a full-time writer for The Jack Parr Show. I'll certainly remember Pat McCormick uh, very fondly. I mean, such, lines such as the following, he talked about going on the wagon and said, well, I gave up drinking booze and my liver started showing up on the airport metal detectors. And it was kind of a classic Pat McCormick joke that Carson delivered after the big earthquake hit L.A. Due to today's earthquake, the God is dead rally has been canceled. <laughs> he gave us a lot of laughs and, and uh, Pat, we salute you. We are out of time. Our thanks to Michelle Feynman. We especially enjoyed uh, talking to her about her book, Perfectly Reasonable Deviations from the Beaten Track, a collection of letters from her father, Richard P. Feynman. And we'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock with probably Steve Squires and William K. Hartman. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned now for Todd. And in our final item of the day, I, I should take note in thinking about uh, uh, dads and, and teaching and, and learning and science that my own dad was a teacher. 
And uh, I do owe him a great debt, I think, in, in instilling in me when I was very young uh, a reverence for learning. So this would be a good time to say, thanks, Dad. He's been gone for uh, four years now, but uh, what he instilled with me continues on into the future. So again, Dad, thanks. Thanks.